whenever I weaken and I think about quitting or stopping, I say to myself that maybe this is the key moment right here. Maybe if I would have just kept going rather than quit, maybe that would have been where I had a breakthrough. So, but because I quit, I'm not going to see it. So, you know, I'm going to press forward. I'm going to keep going and I'm going to see what happens. Maybe that's the biggest thing that I've learned. I'm Michelle Edwards. I'm the author of a novel called Chronicle of Endings, but I want to continue the conversation. It's a conversation about the different endings we face across the course of our lives and ultimately about all the beginnings that open up after. I want to speak to men because men don't always have the place or the permission to talk openly about their difficulties the way women do. But I want to speak to women too, because we are all the same human beings trying to navigate the same universal human experiences. Mostly, through these interviews, I want to have the opportunity to speak directly and openly with you. Each guest's experiences will allow you to reflect on your own about the endings you have faced and the ones you are yet to face, the mindset and actions which brought these people through their difficult times will, in turn, speak to you about your own. Because whether it's a novel, a podcast, or just two mates finally speaking about things that matter over a beer, words Words have the power to change people, to change their lives, to change yours. So, can we talk? Jeffrey, hi. Hi, how you doing? I'm good, thank you. Welcome to Chronicle of Endings. Um, where are you located, Jeffrey? Yeah, I'm located in, uh, in, in, in New York, specifically in the, in, in the Bronx. Yes, Bronx you have New a York. lovely New York accent. <laughs> well, you, you, have a, you have an Aussie uh, accent <laughs> yeah. as well, so we're, we're even. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, you have a really incredible ending, uh, mm. Jeffrey. You were wrongfully accused of rape and murder as a 16-year-old and you went to prison. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the beginning of this story and tell us how it played out. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was uh, 16 years old. I was in Westchester. I was in Westchester County, New York. It was the, it was the suburbs. And uh, murders were uh, murders were pretty rare. So a, a classmate of mine was uh, a classmate was found uh, murdered and raped. There hadn't been a murder there in uh, maybe twenty years. So it uh, created an atmosphere of fear, rumor, paranoia. 
you know, parents were concerned with their own safety as well as the safety of their children. I got on the police radar just through three things. So firstly, uh, the, some of the, when the police interviewed people in the school, some of them told them that they might want to speak to me because I was quiet and to myself and I didn't fit in. So that got me on the police radar. And another thing was that uh, I was a sensitive teenager and I had emotional reaction. And the, to the police, that looked suspicious. And lastly, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So it was a type of reinforcing factor. Uh, my father was never involved in my life in any way. And that intersected with the police tactic of good cop, bad cop, where one officer pretended to be my friend. I began to look up to him as like a father figure. Before I was a teenager, what I envisioned growing up to be was to be a police officer, and that also intersected with one of the police tactics. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me. Half the time they talked to me like I'm a suspect, and the other half the time they pretended like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like, kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Uh, let us know if you hear anything stopping from time to time, they would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinions were correct. So eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test, also called a lie detector, by telling me they had some new information that they wanted to share with me and that would allow me to be more helpful to them. But first I would have to take and pass this polygraph. So the next day, rather than report to the school, I went to the police station for the test but instead they drove me out of county. They drove me to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. So it was about 40 minutes away by car, which meant that I didn't know where I was anymore. I was uh, not able to leave on my own. Uh, they, the polygraphist was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, uh, Daniel Stevens, and he was dressed like a civilian and he pretended not to be a cop. He never read me my rights. He never identified himself. And they put me in a small room and he gave me countless cups of coffee, which got me nervous because I was not a coffee drinker at 16. And then he attached me to a polygraph machine and then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean? You didn't do it. You just told me through the test that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear through the roof. And then the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but that he couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. And then he added, if I did as I wanted, they'd stop what they're doing. I could go home afterwards, that I was not going to be arrested. Uh, being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned with my safety in the moment. I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew either was loom very large in my mind. And then there was the push-pull dynamic because on one hand, the possibility of harm had, had been suggested and then he, had, he gave me this false life preserver. So I made up a story based on the information which he had given me in the course of the interrogation and, and uh, what I'd been told in the six weeks run up to that. By the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested.
that would be such a horrendous experience for anyone, let alone a 16-year-old there without any support. Yes. Yes, that's true. So you went straight from there to... I went from there to the to the county jail. Uh, I wound up uh, getting bailed out after about thirty five days, and um, you know, I, when it was close to a year went by, I, I you know it was time for the trial. I turned seventeen, and then the trial started. Uh, before the trial started, the DNA didn't match me. It, it showed that semen found the victim didn't match, but then the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud to falsely claimed that he forgot to document medical evidence, which he said showed that the victim had been promiscuous. Her family was not coming to court, so they didn't know what was being said about her in the court, that they were trashing her reputation in order to wrongfully convict me. And then he mentioned another youth by name that he claimed slept with the victim, but he never called him as a witness. He never had a DNA test performed. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury my public defender essentially didn't defend me. Uh, he didn't call as a witness my alibi. He didn't uh, cross-examine this medical examiner. He never explained to the jury what the DNA not matching me meant. He never used that to challenge the confession. Sometimes he argued a confession didn't happen at all. Other times he argued that it happened, but it was coerced. And that still other times he argued that it happened, but it was uh, false. And uh, when I was inter the interrogation was not videotaped or audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. So he was able to leave the threat and false promise out of his story. And my, my lawyer would not allow me to testify. And it was very important in a false confession case. Uh, there's an 80% conviction rate. So you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to try to disprove that confession and bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. And the end result of it was that I was wrongfully convicted and given a 15 to life sentence. Um, I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence instead of expressing remorse and taking responsibility. Ultimately, I was exonerated um, after 16 years through further DNA testing via the DNA data bank, which uh, not only reaffirmed the prior negative result, but it also identified the actual perpetrator whose DNA was in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed the second victim uh, three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and had two children. So looking back on it now with what you know, the chain of events that made all of the people involved in, um, in getting you convicted when there were certainly doubts what do you think they were, why do you think they were so strongly um, trying to, uh, trying to get this result? With, with I think they wanted, I think, I think they wanted to make it appear as though they solved, they solved the case that was on the police level, on the prosecutorial level. I mean, I think, I mean, I think he wanted to win the case. He was more, you know, committed to trying to win, to put another notch on his belt, you know, with the idea of trying to get, a promotion, which, you know, would involve a pay, a pay raise and other perks that go with that. He was more concerned with that than he was with justice. And you think that maybe him finally having to admit that he had made some mistakes in his investigation or done some things 
not by the books in the investigation would have made him look bad at the time. Well, I mean, he wasn't the one who had gotten the confession out of me. That was the cop. So he, he, you know, the prosecutor could have put, could have put the brakes on everything and it would have been, you know, the cops in trouble. But really, they both could have worked together and really been the hero in the situation. Look, we, we did further investigation. You know, we we made a mistake. We want to, you know, we want to stop this train before it goes any further. We want to refocus our investigation and find the actual perpetrator. And what was the idea from your lawyer behind you not taking the stand? He told me that it wasn't his job to prove that I was innocent. It was up to the prosecutor to prove that I was guilty. And he didn't think that that had happened. I mean, that might be a legal principle, but that's that's very naive to practice law like that. Uh, the other thing he mentioned, he said that his win-loss record was better when his clients did not testify compared to when they did. But most of his clients probably had a, a criminal record. I didn't, you know, and if they took the stand, they could be asked questions about that. But that didn't apply to me. I mean, I had never been arrested for anything before. Yeah. How was your mother during this time? I imagine it would have been extremely hard on her. And do you think she doubted your innocence? Well, are you asking about like when, when I was going to trial or while I was imprisoned? When you were going through the trial, when all of this started to mm -hmm. surface? Yeah, no, she, she, it was definitely hard on her. I mean, she did, she did believe in my innocence. Yeah, it must be really hard when you're, the whole community around you starts to get caught up in it and it, you know it's really hard for you to i guess <clears throat> make people believe otherwise yeah 100 percent uh you know i when i did get bailed out i thought i was going back to my old life but they would never be going back to it ever you know i wasn't allowed to go back to school as long as the case was open uh, everybody believed I was guilty because, I mean, the cops arrested me for it. And then there was a report of a confession. I was a very hated figure in Peekskill. And, uh, you know, parent, the, the few friends that I had left that, you know, their parents weren't willing to let them play with me. So, yeah. And every time I went to court, it was uh, this major media moment with everything from a guilt presumptive oriented perspective. How, how did you... How did you um, fare mentally during that time? It was very difficult for me. In, in fact, uh, it was so unbearable that I made a suicide attempt. So I took, I took a unopened, I opened a bottle of uh, extra strength Tylenol and I took all of the pills and I went to sleep and I intended not to wake up again. Well, I'm glad that you did wake up again. Thank you. And what a hard journey. I can't believe that this happened to you. And I'm so sorry. Um, what was it like in prison, especially coming out from life as a kid with your family, going to school and going then to prison? What was that like for you? I was prison was very frightening. I mean, it, uh, you know, it was very violent there. I was sent to a men's maximum security prison, first of all, because I had been charged as an adult and sentenced as an adult. Uh, I was very violent in prison. Uh, I had a, 
bullseye on my back. I was always worried that people would be would discover what I was incarcerated for because there's a vigilante mentality where people have been convicted of sex offenses. Uh, so there were times throughout the years I was uh, there were a few times throughout the years where I was beat up. One time I nearly lost my life. The guards were very uh, abusive uh, verbally. And beyond the uh, physicalities of that, uh, I also had to uh, fight off uh, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, uh, suicidal ideation. So all of those things were difficult. Um, for them, I, I had two friends that came to see me. One, one of them came one time and the other person stayed in touch with me for five years and I lost track with him. Um, my grandmother passed away while I was in prison. Uh, my brother came to see me three times in 16 years, not, not at all in the last decade. And in the last six years, my mother used to come about once every six months. So in many, and you know, the, the overwhelming majority of my extended family did not come to see me at all. So in, in, in many respects, I essentially did the time uh, on my own. Yeah. Were you able to make friends with any of the other inmates? I had a lot of activity partners. I mean, I didn't try to be popular, but, you know, you do fall into pockets of people that, you know, play basketball or play chess or play ping pong, play cards or who like watching sports. So I did have a lot of people in that way. Um, so it was more that I had activity partners and, you know, some people you talk to a little bit more than others. Uh, that was the general rule. Um, having said that there were, you know, there were some people that I kind of broke the rules with and I was a little bit more friendly with them. Uh, there was another prisoner there named Frank Sterling, who was also innocent and we, uh, kept each other going for thir 13 and a half years. We would meet up once every six weeks and try to encourage each other morale wise. And we would try to brainstorm about what the next moves were to make, to try to establish our innocence and regain our freedom. And just wanted to quickly add that uh, Frank was exonerated a couple of years after me. So you were always able to maintain hope that you would be exonerated? Overall, yes. The short answer is yes. But if I was to put a little more color to it, I would say that in that my and what turned out to be my last year of imprisonment, maybe it was 60, 40 towards despair because my, I had lost seven appeals that took me through 11 years. And then I wrote letters for four years looking to find help because the only way back into the court when your appeals are over is, is if you can find some new evidence. So I wrote letters for four years, rarely getting response. And as I mentioned, I got turned down for parole. Uh, and so at that point, I thought that I was going to die in prison. And so it was more like 60, 40 to despair. So prior to that year, the whole time, yes, I did think that I was going to be exonerated. And that was the main basis of my hope and being able to continue on. I mean, other factors were definitely uh, belief in God. Uh, I used to go to the law library and learn the law. And I used to read about other people who were exonerated and that helped as far as um, mo motivation. Um, I would, uh, I engaged in this elaborate delusion where half the time when I, where, when I would play basketball, ping pong or chess, I would pretend like if I was a professional player and so were the other people, but it wasn't really like kids just fantasizing on a playground. I mean, this was more like a defense mechanism that, you know, I needed to uh, get out of the prison for a couple of hours. So I did those things. I took the educational programs that I could while I was there. 
Uh, I got a GED. I got an associate's degree. I completed a year of schooling towards the bachelor's before funding was cut for college education for prisoners. And then from 1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books uh, a week. So I found things to I found things to do. On that note, how important do you feel the access to college education is for prisoners? Oh, it's essential. It's a very serious crime fighting tool. So in uh, in America, there is a 68 percent recidivism rate and there is. Uh, and then in contrast to that, there's a nonprofit organization called Hudson Link, which provides college education for prisoners. And uh, they only have a 2 percent recidivism rate. I mean, it's not hard to understand that if you broaden somebody's horizons, plus you equip them for gainful employment, then their odds of them returning to a crime free, returning, making a successful reintegration to live a crime free life, you know, are much higher than if someone is, you know, doesn't have any skills at all. And there's still the same mentality that they were before. So was it your petitioning that finally got the DNA solved for your case? Or was that somebody else's work on the outside? It was a legal group called the Innocence Project. I mean, one of the letters that I wrote resulted in my coming in touch with an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman, and she connected me to the Innocence Project. And uh, another woman named Maggie Taylor, who worked there, presented my case uh, a total of three times to the lawyers. You know, they had said no a couple of times. And once they getting their representation was the key. And the second thing is that the district attorney uh, who had fought my appeals and blocked the DNA testing, uh, she left office. So our successor wasn't as dug in. And the third thing was that uh, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank, you know, and so it, we were able to match it to him. And, you know, I, again, my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds and he was arrested and convicted of the crime. And what was it like to finally make it back out? It was so surreal, I didn't believe it was happening. So my first words at the press conference were, is this really happening? I thought I finally did it, that I finally managed to lose my mind and that I would uh, wake up and see the cell walls and uh, the, the, the cell bars and you know, I'd still be in prison. So yeah, it was surreal, but, but overall, uh, it was very hard to reintegrate back into society. Uh, you know, it's normal to have psychological after effects of that kind of experience. And uh, there was a stigma of having been in prison. I was there wrongfully, yes, but I was there. So how much of that rubbed off on me? You know, is it safe to be alone someplace? Uh, so there was that. Uh, they release you with nothing. Uh, I was able to sue and get some compensation, but that took about five years. So I was always passed over for gainful employment. And so you know, it, it, things were very difficult uh, financially. At one point, I was just a couple of weeks away from homeless shelter. Um, I, uh, technology, I didn't understand the technology. So GPS, cell phone, internet hadn't been invented previously. Uh, the culture was different. Cities and towns looked different. So it felt like I was in a parallel world. And it did feel, uh, it did feel very lonely as well. Uh, so all those things, I, and it was particularly hard for me because I had never before lived on my own. I never had to go shopping. I never, I didn't, hadn't had a driver's license or wrote a check or balanced the budget. So those things made it 
particularly uh, difficult. At the same time, you know, I did, uh, I did uh, become an advocate upon my release. So I started doing speaking engagements. I became a weekly columnist. I was trading privacy for awareness and doing media interviews. I was regularly meeting with elected officials. Uh, I did get a scholarship from Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree, the last 10 classes. And I was able to then get a master's degree from John Jay College. And after five years, I was financially compensated. I, I took some of the money and I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, whose purpose is to free innocent people. We've been able to free 10 people and, and help pass um, seven laws uh, aimed at preventing uh, wrongful conviction. And at some point, I was tired of sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to be able to represent some of the clients myself and uh, make some of the arguments. So I became an attorney. Well done. Thank you. Were there any programs to help prisoners transition from prison back into society? Did that exist then or does it exist now? Well, they had something that was called the pre-release center, uh, but then they helped with certain things and, and that's in the prison. And there are a lot of NGOs that help with prisoner reentry, but that's for, that's for people who are on parole. Uh, you know, I mean, in a pre-release center, that's not taking into account that somebody might be exonerated and released through winning their case and the nonprofit organizations that are doing the uh, reentry work. That's for people on parole and probation. I mean, I went there and asked them for help, but, you know, they said that you know, I was exonerated and I was not the population for which they were funded to assist me. And so they were not willing to assist me, which really didn't make any sense. I mean, my argument to them was, all right, so you're not funded for me. So what? You're already, the lights are on, your salaries are paid. Just give me an extra seat. I have some of the same needs. So what if you can't get paid for it or you can't cite it to your funders. So what? Just do the right thing humanitarian-wise. I find it really unbelievable that they can release you for 16 years of wrongful imprisonment with no immediate con compensation. And not only that, you had to go back and fight for compensation for this matter. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. I, I believe that when someone is exonerated, that it's a governmental responsibility to immediately provide housing, cost of living uh, expenses, uh, mental health care, doctor and dental, uh, access to public transportation, job training, job placement, uh, classes on technology. But, you know, they don't they don't do that. And there's even 15 states in New York that excuse me, in 15 states in the U.S. that don't offer compensation. But you made it through. And, I, and I have a mission. I, yeah, I, I made it through and I have a mission in life and I did find myself, you know, and I do believe that my purpose in the world is to free innocent people, prevent this from happening, fight for broader, broader justice reform. And that's how I make sense of everything. And I'm not, I'm not a angry person. I take my, and the energy and I channel it into the work that I do. And, you know, I do do a lot of speaking engagements across the country and some internationally also. Yeah, so not only are you helping those who are wrongfully imprisoned, but you're raising so much awareness, which is really important. Yeah, often raising awareness is a prerequisite to getting some laws changed. So, you know, I have been working on that as far as uh, 
parole reform and elderly people in prison. Those are, and I've spoken against solitary confinement. And I've talked about over sentencing, and those are all issues in addition to wrongful conviction. So what did this whole experience teach you about yourself? It taught me that I'm strong. It taught me it taught me what my mission in the world is, and there does come some inner peace with that. I do believe in setting goals, you know, ha having manageable steps, uh, you know, within a plan, uh, being flexible enough to vary the plan a little bit as circumstances dictate, because, you know, the goal is the goal, the plan is not the goal. And to work very hard for what you want and to just not give up. And I believe if you do that, then at some point, if you want it bad enough and you keep going, that you can achieve it. Uh, often, and, and I've done that not just to get through being wrongfully imprisoned, but even uh, getting through those initially initial five difficult years before I was compensated. And uh, I did that as well when I was in grad school, getting a master's degree. And later when I struggled through the three years of law school and eh, 10 weeks of hell that it is in preparing for the bar exam, doing 10 and 14 hours of uh, studying a day. So I, I, I practice what I preach. I have uh, applied that a lot to myself. And whenever I weaken and I think about quitting or stopping, I say to myself that maybe this is the key moment right here. Maybe if I would have just kept going, rather than quit, maybe that would have been where I had a breakthrough. So, but because I quit, I'm not going to see it. So, you know, I'm going to press forward. I'm going to keep going and I'm going to see what happens. Maybe that's the biggest thing that I've learned. That's a really beautiful point and something that everybody can apply to their own mindset every day. Absolutely. I do. I believe there's a lot of things to be learned from 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 my case and from my story uh, above and beyond the legal implications, all of which are important. And I just like that's why I address broader justice reform because very disturbing what I saw up close and personal. But beyond that, there's general lessons, nothing to do with the law or legal system. Uh, things like, you know, what I take the universal principle, take whatever adversity you're dealing with and, and keep working. Don't quit. Have a plan. Don't stop. And when you manage to come through and come out on the other side, reach back and help people that are in the same position that you used to be and see what could you do on the preventative side to assist people prevent that from other from whatever happened whatever it was that happened to you from happening to other people i think that that applies in terms of sex trafficking uh, women who are uh, abused within uh you know, domestic domestic violence uh people who are homeless i i think it applies universally in as many ways as we can as, as as we can as we as we can think and you know take that energy and channel it into your work rather than uh, being angry or bitter, 
Uh, I think that regardless of your age, it's never too late to go for your goals and to continue education. Rather foolishly, I thought I was too old to go back to school when I was 32. But thank God somebody reached out to me and offered me the scholarship to finish the bachelor's and then I springboard, springboard from there getting the other degrees. But I mean, if I do it, I do believe that, you know, other people can can uh, do the same. I mean, it was a goal of mine when I was a, when I was a teenager. I wanted to be a lawyer, and uh, I still made that happen. I still realized that dream. And speaking of dreams, I do believe that it is. I know that it's better to it is better to chase your dreams to go all out for them, even if you wind up coming up short. It's better to chase them and try than to never try it at all. I, 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 I know that that's true. And I think that it's really important to appreciate the small things. I appreciate feeling the sun on my face, fresh air, being able to be outside when it's dark, uh, freedom of movement, ability to try, try new things, try new food, try new activities, go new places, even activities you have no interest in just to see how the other side of the world lives that, that does do them. So I love doing new things. And so I do practice that myself. And I've learned from other people's reaction to me who feel inspired by me and my work. Uh, I've learned a lesson in that, which I, I've often heard verbalized. They People tell me that my story offers them a perspective. They say, look, I have this problem with, with my job or my business is this difficulty or that difficulty. But man, when I stop and think about the difficulties that you had, you know, it, it really puts it into perspective and everything seems a lot more manageable then. And so I think all of those things can apply to anybody across the board. Yeah. Jeffrey, your whole life, I guess you've been Jeffrey, the kid who went to prison, and then Jeffrey, the man who got out of prison. But underneath these stories, who are you, and what do you love, and what do you, um, what do you do for fun? Yes, yeah. Uh, I, I think that in general, I am somebody that enjoys. Uh, I am someone that enjoys. You know making a difference. I am somebody who's sentimental. And in terms of fun, uh, I love doing new things. I like to try new activities, have new experiences, try new food, go new places. I really love to travel. I like playing chess because it's a game where you have to think ahead. Uh, I like to go for a casual bike ride. I like most things that involve a ball. I still like going, I still do go on bumper cars. So I like, I like doing that. So I think it's better to do things that you enjoy, even if uh, like bumper cars is more of a kid activity. That's not really an adult, but look, it's, it's now or never. And I'm not about to tell myself never. Yeah. So I, so I do think that, it, so that's part, those are, I like going to, I like going to sporting events in person, uh, basketball and uh, watching tennis. I can't stand tennis on television, but to, but to watch it in person is, is interesting. And it, you know, baseball is, is fun to watch in person, the atmosphere of, of a game. So I like, I like doing those things. And if somebody comes up with an, with an idea of this, of some new activity, then, 
that's the best thing. And I, I enjoy a good conversation. I, I like connecting with people. I, I would rather have an in-depth, meaningful conversation with somebody with a it's not no judgment zone and free exchange of ideas, maybe even debate. That's better to me than to sit around and to just have uh, how are you doing and, you know, how's the weather and all this meaningless, you know, uh, conversation that's just surface level. And, and I find that to be, uh, I, do, I do find that to be recharging. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess through all of, the time that your freedom was taken away from you, you wouldn't take anything for granted, any day, any experience, any bumper car, you know, any, any baseball game. And I, right. yeah, you, you have a lot of time to make up for. And um, I mean, I guess you wouldn't take advantage of, of the fact that you had those things. Right. Before I went through this experience, I was like most people. And, you know, I took for granted the small, the, 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 the small things. And I think maybe I wasn't as, you know, enthusiastic as, you know, or, you know, uh, conscious as I am now. Yeah. So I guess that's a good thing as well. Yeah. Jeffrey, you're doing such beautiful things in the world now. If I can direct people on anyone who might like to support you or follow along with you um, on the internet in any place, where can we direct them? Yes. So my ultimate goal is to uh, not just have a fully equipped staff in here in New York, but in offices, but each state in the U S and ultimately in every country, because I look at wrongful conviction as a worldwide problem and countries where we don't hear about wrongful conviction, it's not because they're not happening. It's that nobody is working uh, on, on, on them. Uh, so having said that, uh, so my initial dream in towards or as a goal, a, a route to that dream, what I should say, would be, so we do have a, we do have a, a page on the a website, Patreon. So what if there were 25,000 people that were willing to help free wrongfully convicted people by donating $3 or $5 on a recurring monthly basis through that page? So if people Google Patreon and then Deskovic Foundation, so that would be one way they can help. Uh, Am Amazon has the Amazon Smile program, so you, they can register the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for there, and, and the Amazon will donate a small percentage of your purchase to the organization without it increasing the, the cost of the consumer. There is my website, www.deskovic, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C.org. There's a web form there. People can email me. I do answer. Uh, I'm, I can be found on Facebook. There's a public figure page, Jeffrey Deskovic. Uh, there's Instagram and LinkedIn. And so I do use all of those platforms as well. So if you'd like to keep up with me, my advocacy work, and I post upcoming speaking engagements, articles that I've written or media coverage or upcoming advocacy and I share articles about justice reform and wrongful conviction. And sometimes I do post some fun things as well. So if I'm, you know, if, if I'm doing one fun thing or another, I, I post that also. So if people want to connect with me there, keep up with me, see what I'm doing, you know, they certainly can do that. And as I mentioned, I, I do answer messages. Uh, I am a people person. So I love to uh, meet new people. 
I even started, I even recently started a meetup group. It's called Chess with Jeffrey Deskovic and other activities. So, and I, I'd, I'd encourage people, you know, around the world, you know, to, to join and just put a comment in the discussion thread, reference what country, what state you are, because if I find myself in your area with some free time, it would be great to explore the area, do some new activities, do some new things, play a game of chess. It's better to do stuff with people than not. So people can also uh, join that way. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us and your time and just the work that you're doing in the world. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you, uh, you, you having me and you're the first person I've done an interview with. That's, uh, that's Australian. So that's, uh, and I, I hope, I hope, and I hope one day to get to Australia. I'd love to, you know, visit and uh, see the country and explore things. Uh, you should definitely make it. It is a beautiful place. Please share this story with anyone you feel may benefit from hearing it. Or if you or someone you know have your own story to share, feel free to drop me an email at m